Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. And good morning. Welcome, Dirt Radio. That's where we are. I'm John Langer, and we're Friends of the Earth, of course, and you can can check us out at foe.org.au. Once again, thanks to Yarrabug for the show. Well, Australia's summer is officially over, and it's been a weird one. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick is here with Dirt Radio to tell us why. Sarah's a research fellow at the University of New South Wales, and her work is specifically about Australian climate extremes and the human components related to trends in droughts and heat waves. Sarah, good morning. Good morning, John. How, How are, you? are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Much now, better now that it's colder. <laughs> that's exactly where I wanted to start. Now, what made the summer such an unusual one, especially in terms of extreme heat? Yeah, so it was particularly in the east and particularly over New South Wales, a little bit of Victoria and a little bit of Queensland. We just seemed to have this string of epic heat waves from about Christmas all the way through to the end, to about the middle of February, where pretty much every week in that period we had a heat wave. And some regions even had this prolonged heat wave where it just kept on going for, you know, over a week. So, yeah, that's, I think that's, at least in that part of the country, that, that's what was the hallmark of this summer, was just lots of intense heat. And this was very unusual, particularly for places like Canberra, Sydney. But the other thing that's interesting, as I read, was it wasn't just heat, it was cold as well. Uh, it, yeah, so particularly over in the West, that's where it got quite cold. They had a couple of... Actually, no, it was in particular one uh, tropical depression came down south. And I think Perth had its coldest February day on record, or at least the coldest in quite some time. And that was caused by the fact that they had this tropical low come down. Lots of rain was dumped and the sun simply couldn't get through. So, yeah, they had, they had the opposite, really, of what we had over here. Still very strange. And uh, yeah. let's, let's go back to Canberra. It's uh, apparently massively unprecedented heat wave in early February. And yeah. this was no freak of nature happening. There was modelling. It uh, suggests that human influence had a major influence. Now, I wanted to ask you in terms of a layperson, how do you model this sort of stuff And in terms of being a climate researcher? How do you calculate this? Yeah, so what we do, we um, we use climate models. That's the only real way we can actually work out the, the human contribution behind these events. And what we do, we, we, we choose a particular model that we think is a good representation of the climate. So it has to be able to get some key features right before we even think it's worthwhile using. And then we, what we do, we, we run lots of experiments. Some of these experiments have uh, climate change included. So that is basically uh, the amount of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases we've released into the atmosphere. That's included in the model experiment. Then we also run the exact same model, but then not include those carbon dioxide emissions. So it's almost like the world without climate change. So no human 
component whatsoever. And then we compare the frequency of whatever event we're interested in between those two simulations or two sets of experiments. And that tells us whether or not we've seen an increase in that event occurring because of what we've done to the climate system. And you found in your comparisons that there's, there is huge variations and the human factors are, are central to that. That's right, yeah. So it always depends on the event you're looking at. Every single event will have a different climate signal behind it. Uh, generally, when you look at an event over a larger area for a longer time period, the, single, the signal is stronger just because you've gotten rid of that vari- variability due to weather or even due to seasonal processes such as El Nino, if we're having one that summer. Uh, when you're looking at the finer scale events, so when you're going down to the city level, so for example, Sydney or Canberra, it can be a little bit harder to tease out a signal just because weather is a huge source of variability. Um, and that can sometimes dampen the signal. It doesn't mean the signal is not there. It can just sometimes be harder to detect. And what I was reading was that you were your calculations were that, uh, if I've got it right, 50%. I'm, I'm probably not ca- quoting the figures exactly, but uh, there was a, a 50% more likelihood that human factors were involved in, in terms of the modelling. Is that is that the way you calculate yeah. yeah. So that's about right. Like we're looking over Canberra. Like when we, so when we look just at the city scale of Canberra, that's what we found, that that event now occurs 50% more often than what it used to without climate change. It was a little bit harder to get a signal out at the Sydney site simply because of the Sydney site's located near the ocean and the ocean plays quite a um, moder- moderating influence on temperatures over Sydney. But when we looked at New South Wales as a whole for that four-day heat wave that we had, because it was a larger area, we could detect that that event now occurs twice as often compared to what it used to without climate change. So because we looked at a bigger area, we could get a strong signal out. Sarah, I want to turn a little bit to a broader picture, and I'm sure you've been thinking a lot about this, and it is connected with your work. Canberra is a a useful reference point. It's the home for our political class, and over the past few weeks we've been hearing about the government wanting to set set aside money from the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to fund what they're I suppose, uh, oxymoronically calling clean coal. And <laughs> yeah. um, yesterday I read Donald Trump in the United States is dramatically cutting funding for climate change research. As a researcher and researchers like yourself, how are you feeling about your work in terms of it? Is it, is it under threat or is it being undermined? It's pretty depressing. I think that's the best way I can put it. It's, you know, the climate, climate scientists have been talking about this since before I was born. It's not, you know, it's not old news. Sorry, it's not new news. It's old news. It's something that we've been talking about and have known about for quite a while. Yet no one seems to be listening to us. So we're not making these numbers up. We're not in this industry for the money. I can assure you of that. You know, we're doing a job. We're, we're working on a science and this science has a massive impact to pretty much everything we know on Earth. And so it's quite frustrating that it seems like all of this information and knowledge we're providing is actually falling on deaf ears. And particularly in the last couple of years in Australia, it felt it feels like we've gone backwards. But when you compare that to Donald Trump's point of view and everything he's doing over in the States, I mean, it's, you know, that, that's far worse and it's far more depressing. So it's, yeah, it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit, yeah, depressing is probably the best way I can describe it right now. I'm hopeful that things will improve and maybe in... Five years, um, mm. things will be looking a bit better. But that's, I mean, that's the best way we can look at it now. Hopefully it's just short-lived and not um, a permanent thing. Yes. And uh, look, uh, again, I, I, just, I just want to put it in the, in the broader political context because I know you're, you're very much part of this and, and in these discussions. 
Um, you don't think that the Trump, what Trump is doing is, is does it have, in, in a way, give a license to, to rolling stuff back here, do you think? Um, I hope not. I'm, I guess that remains to be seen. It depends how our uh, government responds to what Trump's doing. If anything, it might very well, you know, encourage them to invest into oxymoronic industries like clean coal um, and even, you know, carbon capture and storage. Well, it might have a place somewhere. It's not exactly, you know, the, the, um, the fix that we all need. So it might give them a little bit more leeway or a little bit more justification to look down uh, different alternative sources of fossil fuel energy. Um, but I'm hopeful we don't turn out to be like the states as well. Now, you're, you are a climate researcher and you're a part of a, a, um, a number of professional people doing this sort of work in Australia, around the world. How do you go about defending your research I guess the, what I'm asking is, how do you defend your research in terms of powerful interests who might not share your, I suppose, your way of thinking about stuff? How do you, how do you make those those defences? Um, good question. That's actually what I've never really been asked before. Look, we're not funded by any corporation to do our research. Our money comes from an independent source, mostly the Australian Research Council. So we have to compete against all other industries of research from anything to, I don't know, coal mining, for example, to linguistics. So we have to demonstrate that our research is worth funding from a project standpoint. It's not coming from vested interests. So I think that's one defence we need to make abundantly clear and people need to really recognise. We don't have any vested interest in what we're doing. We're not paid to, to create results. We're paid to create or get the truth. So that's, I mean, that, that's where I'm coming from. That's my standpoint anyway. What I'm doing is what the data is, you know, what I, what I present is what the data is showing and there's no other funny business about it. It's not coming, for example, from the Heartland Institute, which you've probably heard of in America or anything like that. It's not funded by any think tanks. It's all funded by an independent research body. Now, finally, I just want to ask about us, you know, the, the listener, the people at 3CR, people like us who are not experts necessarily, but concerned citizens, how do we go about defending your work and, and, and protecting it? Uh, the best thing, I think, is to stand up for us. You know, uh, if, if you think something needs to change, then lobby your local council member. I live in a very safe Liberal seat, so it can sometimes feel like it's falling on deaf ears, but mm. it's still worth doing. Uh, change, if, you know, they're not going to do anything, they're not going to change anything if they don't hear from the people. Um, that's the best way to do it. Uh, if, if you're wanting to reduce your emissions, I always encourage people to do what they can to, you know, even little things like drive their cars less, only have one car if they can get away with it, if they can afford to put solar panels on their roofs, hmm. you know, things like that. If they can afford a Tesla, well, you know, kudos to them, go and buy one. Um, but yeah, you know, keep up the good fight. <laughs> We're all appreciative of it and we need people to, you know, to stick up for the research and to stick up for what is actually going on. It, it does help and it does help get the message out there. Sarah, I want to say you have to keep up the good work as well and keep up the okay. fight as well. <laughs> I will do. I'll be in this industry for quite some time yet, don't you worry. Yeah, thanks so much for being on Dirt Radio. My pleasure. Thanks very much. That was Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, and she's a research fellow at the University of New South Wales. She's a climate change specialist investigating the upward trends in extreme weather patterns in Australia. Camp Anarchy is happening again this Labor Day long weekend, March 11th to 13th at the gorgeous Bush Camp at 
Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. Get out of the city, camp or stay in cabins, share delicious meals, sing along by the campfire and paddle in the creek. Over the weekend there will be a program of workshops and skill shares. Childcare is provided and costs are kept to a minimum. Anyone interested in anarchist ideas is welcome. To find out more information, go to campanarchy.org. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Yarra City Council is celebrating International Women's Day on the 8th of March with a week of community events and activities to highlight and recognise the achievements of women. Two key events are the presentation of the Inspirational Women of Yarra Award, Morning Tea and Awards Ceremony and Yarra's International Women's Day Business Luncheon. The Council is also hosting a range of exciting activities including women's panel discussions, art and photographic exhibitions, sombra and yoga classes, women's only swim session and mums and bubs story time. Check out yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205555 for more information. City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And we're back. It's Dirt Radio and, of course, we're Friends of the Earth. There's a tarnished jewel. I'm being very poetic here. There's a tarnished jewel that flows through our city. It's the Yarra River. And for years, it's been used, abused, neglected, ignored, but not anymore. The Yarra River has its own advocate. He's Andrew Kelly, and he's the Yarra River Keeper. And he's in the studio with us today. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, John. And thanks for coming into Dirt Radio. I wanted to start by asking, what is a river keeper? Good question, John. So I'm the Yarra River Keeper, and actually, uh, I'm a water keeper as well. And there's more than 300 waterkeepers worldwide. And each waterkeeper is an advocate for their waterway. Each, Ideally, each riverkeeper has a boat on, on their waterway. And I'm really fortunate to have a boat which is moored uh, at Burnley Harbour on the Yarra there near Herring Island. An office near the river. And I'm fortunate enough again to have uh, an office at the convent. Um, it's such a fantastic place to have an office. And um, a paid advocate. And that's me. Right, and you mentioned it's a, it's a worldwide network. Tell us about the global uh, aspects of this. Uh, many cities have river keepers. That's right, John. So we started in New York on the Hudson, uh, and the uh, the first river keeper started there. Uh, the organisation sprang up there, and other people saw it and started to join in and form become their own uh, water keepers, like the Long Island Sound Keeper. And there's a realisation we needed to draw it all together, so it was drawn together uh, by the Waterkeeper Alliance. And we're more like franchises. We're not, res- we're not answerable, but we have to maintain a certain code of conduct. And we've had fantastic successes along the way. We've cleaned up an enormous number of rivers and waterways. Uh, in, the, in the United States, it's a very legally based uh, action. Uh, many waterkeepers there are lawyers. Uh, they, mm. When they win... They get the money from the case. The fines are paid to the organisation. Here, of course, we have a very different scenario. And somebody I know recently went on a study tour of the US and they came back and they said, in the US they've got strong laws and weak policies. In Australia we have strong policies and weak laws, although the Yarra River Protection Act will go to adjusting the second part of that equation for the Yarra. And are there other river keepers around Australia as well? There are. Uh, I'm privileged to be able to share Victoria with uh, 
John Forrester, the Werribee Riverkeeper, and Neil Blake, the Port Phillip Baykeeper. And Catherine is up on the Upper Hunter there in New South Wales. Right. Very interesting. Now, the Yarra runs, and this is, I, I read this yesterday, I didn't realise this. The Yarra runs for 242 kilometres all the way through the Yarra Valley, across Melbourne's suburbs to the CBD. And environmentalists, and this is what both of us know, have been lobbying for planning rules for many years, particularly around the 41-kilometre stretch between Richmond and Warrandyte, where development pressure is really, really strong. Now there's, you've alluded to it, the Yarra River Action Plan. It's just been announced by the Andrews government. What is the plan and what are the major recommendations? Uh, So there's a number of key recommendations. It's a very innovative uh, uh, proposal in terms of water management. So one of the key things that I'd like to start with is the involvement of the traditional owners, the Wurundjeris. So there's very substantial involvement, which is more challenging in an urban setting than it might be in other settings. So this is uh, a world-class act to do this and to actively involve them from the start, and I think that will have enormous benefits. Um, there is plans to have a Birrarung Council, of which the Wurundjeri would be part, an independent council, a council that reports uh, that is entrenched in legislation and reports to Parliament. There'll be a Yarra strategy plan, um, which will uh, draw in not only experts but also community expectations for the river because sometimes planning has gone uh, far ahead of community expectations. So the way it works often is that uh, a planning panel might get together, say, down here at uh, Walmer Street in Abbotsford and make a decision. And when it starts to be built by the developer 10 years later, the community finally gets on board and realises what's going on and says, well, we never agreed to this. We don't like this at all. So this plan will draw the community in so the community has the opportunity to put feedback in early. And the other thing I guess that's important, at least from my point of view, is that right now, as I understand it, every council, every suburb has its own sort of rules in relation to development along the era. This action plan is going to make make the rules more uniform across the suburbs? That's exactly right, John. In fact, the work on that has begun. So on the Friday before the plan was announced, the government introduced planning amendments, a group planning amendment, which is an unusual instrument to use. I mean, it's not unusual. I must say it's little used, so it's quite a powerful thing to introduce a group amendment for the six councils along the waterway. And that has set mandatory height limits, mandatory setbacks, and... Um, overshadowing limitations on the river and it's taken a landscape view of the waterway so we're not just confined to the narrow part of the water we look to the to the banks and the corridor and the parklands that are associated with the Yarra. The government's put this out I'm I'm being the devil's advocate here um what have, have you had any feedback from the developers are that they must be very cranky about this? Uh good question John <laughs> I've had no direct feedback uh my one thing I'd say, though, is it offers certainty for developers so that they know what they can do and what they can't do. Under the present, uh, well, prior to when the amendments were put through, the it was guidelines. And developers would, if the guidelines said 10, they'd go for 15, they'd go for 20, and then there'd be a argy-bargy and settle somewhere in between. I always thought the guidelines should have been stuck with, but with mandatory, at least the developer knows exactly where they stand, what they can and cannot do, so they can plan with certainty. 
that's a benefit for them. I don't know really whether that's a sufficient benefit for them to appreciate the plan in all its glory. Well, I th- look, I, I think the, I, I was being a, a little bit poetic, I suppose, at the beginning, but the Yarra clearly is a very, very important asset. It's a g- very important green asset for Melbourne. The thing that we started with was was climate change. And even though with this action plan in place, the river still exp- has to, I guess, has a number of challenges ahead of it. Climate is is clearly one of them. How have you been thinking about this? Well, the first thing I think about is that if the river deteriorates, it's going to be much more vulnerable to climate change. So the the better we can protect the river, the more resilient it will be. And of course, the key thing, or a key thing for me along the waterway, is biodiversity. And you look at the biodiversity and many of those uh, creatures depend on the river in times, dry times. They will retreat down to the main stem of the river and in wetter times they'll move up the tributaries. Platypus is a really good example of this um, phenomenon. So the river will help the city be resilient if we treat it properly. But the other thing is about the Yarra Strategy Plan, it's going to be a real effort to understand the river as well. And if we understand it better, we can help it deal with the changes that will come with climate change. And this actually leads very nicely into in, into an event I think you're holding this weekend, this coming weekend, uh, a walk, is it? Yes, that's right, John. I'm doing a walk for the Q Festival. We're meeting at uh, 10 a.m. at the Study Park Boatshed and... Uh, People probably should give me a call or go to our website and pick up my phone number from there and give me a call and let me know they're coming. But we're doing a two-hour walk to see some of the beauties of the Yarra. The Yarra is really very wild, even when it's quite close to the centre of the city. And that's on Sunday, is it? Uh, That's on the 11th. 11th. And it's walk... With the yeah, with the river keeper. That's that's you. right. Yeah, <laughs> starting at ten, going to twelve. Yep. Studley Park Boathouse. Exactly. And check it out on the Yarra River Keeper website or or, or our, our Facebook, Facebook page. page. Exactly. Th- Andrew, thank you very much for being in with Dirt Radio this morning. Been talking there with Andrew Kelly. He's the Yarra River Keeper, and uh, we'll put the contact details on our website on the Dirt Radio website. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And uh, we're Dirt Radio, and uh, I want to let you know about a, uh, an inf- info night coming up this Thursday at Friends of the Earth on Smith Street. It's the Pesticides Information Night. It's Thursday, March the 9th from 7 to 9. And you can find out more. And this is very interesting in relation to what Andrew Kelly was just talking about. You find out more about the pesticides that are found in our food and our waterways. And speakers will be Fran Morell from Madge and Anthony Amos from Friends of the Earth, who's done a very comprehensive study on the pesticides in our waterways in Australia. That's it for us another week and uh, we'll be back again next time speak to you then